All right, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 12. Revelation, chapter 12. Now, I ask your patience. For those of you who are here every week, I open up this, with the same basic thing almost every Wednesday. And I do that because there are new people here or watching online, and I don't want to just jump in and not kind of give them some background, okay? We are currently, in our study in Revelation, in a parenthetical section, which runs from chapters 10 through 14. Chronologically, we, when we studied chapter 9, that was the last chapter before we entered into this parenthesis or this flashback. Uh, in chapter 9, chronologically, we entered into the second half of the tribulation period. The technical term is the 70th week of Daniel. So when you hear me say the 70th week of Daniel, you understand I'm talking about what most call the seven-year tribulation period. All right. Uh, so chronologically, we've crossed over into the second half of the 70th week of Daniel. Chapter 12, though, takes us back primarily to the midpoint where the Antichrist sets up his image in the Holy of Holies. Chapter 13 actually takes us back to the beginning of the tribulation period uh, when the Antichrist first is revealed. We'll study that next week. But the idea is that chapters 12 and 13, as we're studying them right now, um, again, doesn't, uh, doesn't move the chronology forward, but really it recaps and amplifies what has already taken place. And it kind of goes back to give us some extra details. Things that we didn't get from the previous chapters. And so that's why these chapters are so valuable. We've been, you know, the chronology, boom, 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 stop, take a breath. Let's go back and zero in on some things that were not talked about in the previous chapters. So let's look at verse 1, where John said, Now, uh, now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon uh, under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. We learned already that this imagery takes us back to Genesis 37, where Joseph had a dream, and, uh, and Jacob interprets the second dream Joseph had, and tells us that this, because this is taken right from Genesis, this imagery is Israel. Israel is in view, not the church, not Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, it's Israel, okay? Verse 2, then, being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. Diadem is the crown of a king. And so this uh, fiery red dragon we know is the devil, who is going to control the final world empire. And... Um, and so uh, we'll study that in more detail in chapter 17. But uh, verse 4, His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And as we've already seen, stars in this uh, passage refers to angels. And this goes all the way back to Satan's rebellion before God ever created the earth. Before the earth was created. And the devil, or Lucifer, uh, and, and God's angels, a third of them rebelled. Bottled Lucifer in the rebellion, and they became fallen angels, and uh, they fell. That's what verse 4 is talking about. And the dragon, Satan, stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Yes, Herod the Great, 
But as we saw last week, uh, this passage really gives a whole new insight into anti-Semitism. Because anti-Semitism is really a coordinated attack by the devil uh, over the centuries to keep Messiah from being born. And to do that, he attacked the one that would bring forth Messiah, Israel. Israel has been hated by the devil like no other nation because she was the one prophesied the nation through which Messiah would come. And even after Messiah has come, the devil hates Israel with a passion still and wants to destroy her. We'll talk about that more uh, in a minute. So the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Of course, we're talking about Jesus, right? And um, verse 5, Jesus was eventually ascended back to the Father. That's what's in view. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And as we said last time, there is a time gap of 2,000 years between the 5th and 6th verses of chapter 12, between the ascension of Jesus back to heaven after his resurrection, and then the fleeing of the Jews in Jerusalem into the wilderness after the Antichrist sets up his image in the Holy of Holies. And of course, we have read numerous times from uh, Matthew 24. Let me read to you verses 15 and 16 again. Jesus said, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. When the Antichrist sets up his image in the Holy of Holies, in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, it will mark the beginning of the last three and a half years of the 70th week of Daniel, spoken of by Jesus, calling it the great tribulation portion of the seventh week of Daniel. He said that in Matthew 24, verse 21. We've talked about that. Remember, guys, a biblical year is 360 days. So half of the 70th week of Daniel, or three and a half years, would equal 1,260 days. It is the most documented period of time in all the Bible. This period of time is spoken of in, in more places and in more different ways. It's called 42 months. It's called 1260 days. It's called the time, times, and half a time. It is the most documented period of time in the Bible. A lot is going on, and God wants to draw our attention to it uh, in numerous ways. But guys, this is going to be a time of unparalleled hostility, persecution, and suffering that will break loose primarily against the Jewish people. I'm not saying it's not going to affect uh, Gentile believers. It will. But primarily, the focus of the devil's wrath through the Antichrist is to persecute and destroy the Jews. He hates the Jewish people. He hates the nation of Israel, right? So this is going to be an unparalleled time of hostility, suffering, and persecution that's going to break loose against the Jewish people perpetrated by the Antichrist and his followers, which is why Jesus told the Jews in Matthew 24, verse 15, when they see the Antichrist set up his image in the Holy of Holies, then don't even go back into your houses to get any supplies, any clothes. You bolt towards the wilderness, bolt, run for the mountains. As we said last time, many scholars and commentators believe 
this place in the wilderness that they were to flee to, this, uh, the, the, the mountains where the Jews in Jerusalem are supposed to flee to, um, to escape the uh, murderous rage of the Antichrist, many believe is the rock city of Petra on the southeast uh, area of the Dead Sea. We covered this last week in some detail. Very interesting place. If you weren't here, uh, you can go online and listen to the message. Uh, we uh, ended last week's message by talking about Petra, so uh, you shouldn't have trouble finding it. But, but we are told in verse 6 that the duration of this time of unparalleled persecution is 1,260 days. From the time the Antichrist sets, sets up his image in the Holy of Holies till Jesus returns to establish his kingdom, 1,260 days. Now, some Christians and Christian commentators have trouble reconciling this with the statement of Jesus in the Gospels. I'll just read to you Matthew 24, verse 22, where the Lord Jesus said, unless those days were shortened. He's talking about the 1260 days or the last three and a half years of the seventh week of Daniel. He said, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Many believe, well, how could that be? God said it was going to be 1,260 days. If God shortens it to a number less than 1,260 days, God's contradicting himself. So they get all worked up about this. From what I understand, the Greek uh, in Matthew 24, verse 22, doesn't indicate that those days will be cut short in the sense of duration. In other words, that there'll be less than 1,260 days. But rather... What Jesus is saying is that unless this period of horrific judgment, warfare, and cataclysmic upheaval was shortened, in other words, uh, if God in his mercy hadn't predetermined that this period, remember the last three and a half years is going to be a time of incredible upheaval, war, uh, cataclysms and things, if God hadn't purposed in eternity past, that he would only let it go on 1,260 days. That it wouldn't go on day after day, week after week, and month after month. If it went on indefinitely, it would be not long before every, all life on earth would be destroyed. Nobody would survive. So in his mercy, he's limiting it, not going to take away from the 1,260 days, but limiting this period to only 1,260 days. And that's a lot of time when you're going through what the Bible talks about is going to happen during this last three and a half years. But it uh, could be much worse if God says it's going to go on for seven years or 20 years. My goodness, the earth would be destroyed. Professor of New Testament Studies, Professor Dr. Ronald Showers, commenting on this, said basically the same thing. Let me read it to you, though. Jesus was teaching that God in the past had already shortened the Great Tribulation. He did so in the sense that he determined to cut it off at a specific time rather than let it continue indefinitely. God knew that if the Great Tribulation were to continue indefinitely, all flesh would perish from the earth. To prevent, to prevent that from happening, in the past, God sovereignly set a specific time for the Great Tribulation to end, end quote. And we just talked about that. All right, verse 7. This blows my mind. And war broke out in heaven. 
Michael and his angels fought again with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. A war broke out in heaven. I mean, think about that for a minute. Try to get your mind around what that would look like, all right? Hey, we're the generation that grew up with Star Wars. This is the real Star Wars. In the Bible, angels are called stars, right? This is the real Star Wars. I can't even imagine as spectacular as the special effects are with some of those Star Wars movies. Uh, I got to believe this this is going to pale by comparison. With, I mean, they're all going to pale by comparison when, uh, when this takes place. I can't even imagine what this would look like. All right? A war broke out in heaven. Now, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of insight into the heavenly realm. I mean, it does give us some, but I'm talking about like warfare. What, what goes on in the heavenly realm with regard to the battle between God's angels and the devil and his angels. We do get a little glimpse from like Daniel chapter 10. You have to turn there. You know it, right? So in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel has a vision. He says it's in, it was in, I think, the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So by this time, uh, Persia has conquered Babylon and has now become the world empire at that time. Daniel uh, was left over from the Babylonian uh, empire and rose to prominence under the, uh, in the Persian government. Cyrus really loved Daniel. Everyone loved Daniel. You couldn't not love Daniel, except the enemies of God hated him. Okay, but he was so upright. And everything he touched was blessed because he loved God so much, right? So all the kings that, you know, Nebuchadnezzar loved Daniel, and, and now Cyrus loves Daniel, right? So he has a vision. And the Bible tells us in Daniel 10 that he understood what the vision meant. But it so burdened him that he set about to fasting and praying about it, probably for more insight from God or some direction. It says in those days he fasted for three full weeks, and it was a Daniel fast. What does that mean? Well, it says he ate no meat, no pleasant bread entered his mouth. So I'm assuming pastries, okay? Uh, he probably lived on either uh, uh, unleavened bread and water or maybe some vegetables. But he was denying himself. He wanted to get insight from God as to, well, okay, you've given me this vision. You've, you've explained what it means. But now what? Is there any further instructions? So he's fasting and praying. After three weeks, him and some guys are by the Tigris River. And suddenly an angel appears to them. Well, the guys who were with Daniel freaked out and they ran and hid. Daniel was left alone and he was so weakened from his fast and so overwhelmed by the vision that he kind of almost collapses, but the angel touches him and suddenly he revives. And the angel says something remarkable. This is, blows my mind. The angel said, Daniel, you are greatly beloved by God. And I want you to know something. From the very first day you set yourself to fasting and praying, God dispatched me to you with your answer. But I was withheld 21 days by the prince of Persia. Now that's a title for some fallen angelic being that was over the empire, the world empire, of Persia. And he said, For three weeks the prince of Persia withstood me. And it wasn't until Michael, one of the chief princes, came to my aid and, uh, and helped me to break through the enemy lines that I'm able to come here with your answer. 
whoa. What if Daniel had stopped praying after 20 days? Would he ever have gotten the answer from God? I don't think so. It teaches us that when you pray, keep on praying. Didn't Jesus say that men ought always to pray and not lose heart? Didn't he teach us? And the Greek is ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, knock and keep on knocking when you pray. Until God answers. Sometimes he says, no, great. Sometimes he says, not yet, but it's coming. And sometimes he just answers immediately. I like those answered prayers. David prayed that, answer me speedily, O Lord. I like that. All right? But sometimes God doesn't do that. But um, incredible that, uh, that, you know, this warfare that took place. And uh, then in verse 20, the angel said to Daniel, uh, he said, And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia, uh, I guess, you know, he had to fight the prince of Persia to get to Daniel. Now he's got to fight him going home. And he said, and when I have gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. Greece wasn't even going to be a world empire for another 200 years. Now, this is amazing. This is incredible that we understand that there is a battle going on in the spirit realm. All around us, all the time, the Bible talks about it. We believe it, but we often take it for granted. And we don't often apply that understanding into some of the problems and tribulations and trials we're going through. We, we, we don't see it as a spiritual battle, a spiritual war, uh, or a, a spiritual attack, right? We have to uh, be more uh, sensitive to the spirit realm and what's going on, okay? But... Um, this definitely tells us that the God of this world, Satan, has placed over the kingdoms of the, of the world demonic overlords, we can put it that way, that network together and to do the devil's will and oppose the work of God in part by persecuting the people of God. All right? I wonder what fallen angelic being, what prince of America is over our country, pulling the strings on our leaders to do the devil's bidding. Of course, they don't would ever see it that way. They just think they're really smart. You know, no matter how much they mess up, they're brilliant. You know, and they don't ever humble themselves. They don't ever acknowledge I was wrong. Um, and they for sure most often never say, uh, I didn't do it God's way. I did it my way, you know. But uh, I'm wondering what fallen angel is over the empire of America, all right? And what underlings that angel, ultimately all controlled by the devil, what underlings are over our cities? I mean, you know, what does anyone doubt that there aren't demonic entities over cities influencing mayors and city councils to do the devil's will? I mean, given the state of our cities, I mean, you know, can anyone doubt that there, there is not a demonic stronghold, stranglehold on cities like, you know, Washington, D.C., L.A., 
Chicago, New York, San Francisco, Minneapolis, Detroit, and um, Seattle and other places, right? I mean, you better believe there are. And you can't fight a spiritual battle with earthly weapons. We have to pray. The weapons of our warfare are not physical, but they are mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. And the only way for uh, the demonic stranglehold on cities across America or with regard to our nation in general is that God's people pray and that we fast and pray as we're going to do in a, a few weeks. Gonna, we do twice a year. We set aside five days to fast and pray, come out to the church every night to pray. And some, Jesus said, there are some demonic strongholds that are so powerful that they cannot be broken except through fasting and prayer. So fasting and prayer are the big guns. And I think we need them because the devil has really got a stranglehold on our country. But again, guys, you all know what Paul said in Ephesians 6.12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness in the heavenly places, right? Uh, that's Satan and his lieutenants and generals and fallen angels and so on. This is who we're really fighting against. Our battle is not really with, you know, the porn industry or Hollywood or the liquor industry, the gaming industry uh, or abortion bills. I mean, yeah, they're being used by the devil, uh, no doubt, but the people have been taken captive by him to do his will. We need to pray. We need to pray because at one time we had, we were also captives of the devil and we're doing his will and so on. Um, so verse 7 again. And a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. Let me just stop and say this. As we have already said, this is the midpoint of the 70th week of Daniel, the beginning of the last three and a half years or 1260 days before Jesus returns. Um, verse 7 parallels something that was prophesied in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Why don't you turn there quickly? So Revelation 12, verse 7 parallels something that we read in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, which reads, At that time Michael, that's Michael the archangel, shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. The sons, he's talking to Daniel. Who are the sons of Daniel's people? He's talking about the Jews, Israel. Michael's going to stand up at one point who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered, every one who was found written in the book, the book of life. Jesus quoted this in Matthew 24, verse 21. When he said, for then there will be great tribulation. He says, when you see the Antichrist set up his image in the rebuilt Holy of Holies in Jerusalem, in the rebuilt temple, um, that will begin the last three and a half years and will be a time of great tribulation. That's where we get the term. Great tribulation. All right. Such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Now, guys, the fact that Michael will lead God's angels to victory uh, over the devil and his angels is significant because Michael is identified with 
the nation of Israel. Check out Daniel 10, verses 10 to 21. Again, chapter 12, verse 1. In fact, Daniel is always associated with the nation of Israel, it seems. He seems to be, in effect, the nation's guardian angel. The name Michael means, who is like God? Who is like God? And he's fighting against the devil, the one who said, I will be like God. Right? Isaiah 14, verse 14. And so again, verse 7, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, verse 8, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Unbelievers, and I'm talking about those who believe in the God of the Bible and Satan, I mean, there are a lot of people that have grown up in church. They really do believe the Bible is God's word. They believe in the God of the Bible. They believe that in, in the devil, that he's real, right? Um, but they're not saved. Often, these kind of people are guilty of a grave error. They often believe that God and Satan are equals, counterparts that are locked in battle for control of the world. I don't know if you've ever kind of met anybody like that. They kind of think that, you know, that God and Satan are, uh, are equals, fighting each other for dominance, for control of the world. Listen, Satan is not the counterpart of God. God has no counterpart. God has no equal, okay? I mean, God is the creator. Satan, once Lucifer, is the creation. If anything, Satan is the counterpart of Michael who seems to be the chief angel of God over the other angels, opposite the devil who is the chief angel over the fallen angels. But let me stop and correct some other misconceptions that many people have concerning the devil. Okay, First of all, the Bible says that Satan is a person. He is a person, not just an abstract idea or the personification of evil, he is a real being. Number two, the Bible talks about him as a person using personal pronouns like he and him to describe the devil. You don't use personal pronouns when you're talking about an idea or the personification of evil, right? You only use personal pronouns when you're talking about a sentient being. Number three, we see God having a conversation with Satan in Job chapter 1. Uh, you can't have a conversation with an idea or a, or a force of some kind, okay? We see him tempt, we see the devil tempt Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. In 1 Peter 5, Peter tells us that the devil goes around like a roaring lion looking for people to devour. Jesus in Matthew 6 told us to pray that the Father would deliver us from the evil one. This person that the Bible calls Satan and the devil. And in Revelation 20, we can look at a lot more of these. I think you get the idea. But in Revelation 20, we see the devil, Satan, finally cast into the lake of fire, hell, where he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, one of the ways that Satan has been able to do so much evil in the world is by deceiving people into thinking 
that he doesn't exist. That he doesn't exist. Uh, and that's a very popular view today because if there's no devil, well, then there's no hell, people imagine. If there's no hell, there's, there's no coming judgment, which means people can basically sin with impunity. I mean, the whole idea of a devil, uh, evil, and uh, the devil being cast into hell someday, we, we've already learned how Jesus said, told us in Matthew 25 that, that hell was not even made for man. It was created for the devil and his angels. But anyone who wants to follow the ultimate rebel uh, in living their life and rebellion against God can follow him all the way to the place where God is going to assign him forever and ever, hell. Okay, But people think of the devil, they think of hell. They think, when they think of hell, they think of judgment. If they do away with the devil, they do away with all that stuff. And then if there's no accountability, if there's no God that they're going to have to answer to someday, then they can live their life any way they want. And that's really why they want to do it. They, they want to get rid of God. We talked about it, I think, Sunday. But guys, the view that Satan isn't a real person is not just limited to atheists and agnostics. Ray Stedman, great commentator, said, and I quote, It is not only atheists and agnostics who scoff at the idea of a real and, a real and personal devil. I once spent an evening in Berlin with a number of very learned and intelligent pastors and theologians. Though we never once opened a Bible, we spent the whole evening together discussing various passages from the Bible. These men knew the Bible so well they could quote entire passages from memory. Yet they all rejected the idea of a personal devil. By the end of the evening, they admitted that in their rejection of the devil, they also had no answer for the problems and puzzles of life, such as the existence of every sort of evil from such random acts of madness as the Manson cult, going back a few years, right? Uh, Manson cult murders to the deliberate, uh, deliberate methodical stockpiling of weapons of mass destruction. Why is this happening? There's no devil. What's going on? That so many people are buying into certain things all at the same time. Look at the world. I mean, if, if America had lost its mind with COVID and all these other things, we could talk, okay, well, it's one nation. All the nations of the world, it seems like, it, it, with one accord, have begun to do the very same things. Tell me somebody is not coordinating all this. I think it's the devil. He asked that question to these very learned men, right? If there is no devil, then what, what's causing all this? The question I kept posing to them was, if there is no devil, then how do you explain what is going on in the world? How do you explain the horrible entrenched evil in human history? And in our newspapers every day, they had no answer, end quote. Now, guys, among Christians who do believe, in a literal person called the devil and Satan, uh, they tend to fall into two categories, all right? I'm talking about Christians now. They either take the devil too lightly or they give him more power and credit than he deserves. Again, he is not God's equal. The devil is not God's equal. In fact, he is God's servant. Now, that shocks people whenever I say that. It, it sounds horrific that I would even suggest that the devil is God's servant. But why does God allow the devil to continue if he's not serving the purposes of God? God is much stronger. God could destroy the, the devil with a word, right? So why does the Lord let the devil go on 
And the only explanation is because the devil is serving the purposes of God. You say, how so? Well, God made us free moral agents. He gave us all free will. And if there's only one choice, God, then free will wouldn't be legitimate in that context, right? I mean, you, you, communist, communist countries talk about, you know, uh, you know, elections that are, you know, they, they, they all call themselves the people republic of this and that, okay, that they have, you know, free elections, but there's only one candidate. So it's not really a fair election. You, you have to have a choice. So the devil provides a choice, and that's why God allows him to continue, that God has made us uh, with, a, with a, a free will, but he has to give us a choice, either himself or, in this case, the devil. And that's why God allows the devil to continue, because Satan is serving the purposes of God. But make no mistake about it, he is not God's equal. He is not God's equal. C.S. Lewis said, and I quote, Some dismiss the devil to their peril, while others are preoccupied with him. Avoid both errors and extremes. God is sovereign over Satan. The devil has no free hand in the world. He is on a leash and can only do what God permits, end quote. Well, read Job chapter 1. That becomes very clear. The devil has to report to God, and he does so. He has access to heaven even to this day. We'll read about that in a moment. But he has to report to God. And as he does... He has to get permission to do whatever he wants to do. And that's what happened with Job. Satan couldn't just do whatever he wanted to Job. He had to get permission from God. And you can read the book and see what God was up to. But another misconception I like to correct is that many people make the mistake of thinking that Satan is the ruler of hell. That he is the ruler over hell. A concept that no doubt they've picked up, as many have, through the writings of Milton and Dante. Um, these guys that kind of romanticized the devil and gave, gave us uh, an image of him, you know, with the, with the pointy ears and pitchfork tail and red pajamas and that kind of thing. Um, but a lot of people get their theology from movies. Uh, I love it when people watch uh, a biblical movie which is completely wrong in, in error, and then they form their theology, and they quote the movie to me. <laughs> okay. Forget the movie. Look at the Bible, okay? But um, a lot of people have formed their uh, opinions about the devil from literature, poems, movies, and so on. Uh, let me set the record straight. Right now, Satan is not in hell. You say he's, he's ruling over hell. Right now, Satan is not even in hell. Nobody is. Nobody is. Nobody is in hell at this moment. Uh, all unbelievers are in the center of the earth in Hades, uh, in the torment side of Hades, waiting to stand before Jesus at the great white throne judgment. Um, when Satan is cast into hell, he's not going to be ruling there. He's going to be suffering like anyone, everyone else in hell, probably a lot more so because... Uh, a person's punishment in hell will be determined by how wicked they were on the earth. And boy, Satan is going to have an eternity of suffering. But uh, he is not ruling over hell, never will rule over hell. He will be cast into hell someday forever, but then he will be suffering like everyone else in hell. Now, the Bible says right now that Satan is the god of this world. That's what he's doing right now. But he still has access to heaven. Again, read Job chapter 1. Uh, he and his angels, his fallen angels, they all have access to heaven uh, as we speak. 
And what does the devil do when he appears before the Lord in heaven? Well, the Bible says he constantly stands before God and accuses God's people. He accuses us to the Father, right? And um, in Revelation 12, we see him finally cast out of heaven once and for all. Once and for all. Verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now, um, the description of Satan in verse 9 is very significant, as uh, it contains all the important titles given to, to, to him in the scriptures. Okay, um, He's described, first of all, as the great dragon. Well, that's a term which also applies to the empire which he is going to dominate under the Antichrist. We talked about fallen angels over various kingdoms of the world and over the world empires like Babylon, Egypt, Assyria, Persia, and so on, right? The final world empire is going to be controlled by the devil himself. He's not going to let an underling do this one. He is going to be the angel over the fallen world system. He is going to be the great dragon, which is also used um, in terms to describe the kingdom, not just him personally, but the kingdom that he rules over, dominates in the end times, right before Jesus comes back. He's also referred to as that old serpent, the serpent of old. And this, of course, is a reference to the devil who appeared to Eve in the Garden of Eden, took the form of a serpent, okay? And uh, he deceived her. And she was uh, deceived, and she ate the forbidden fruit, gave to Adam, and he ate, and they both fell. But uh, he was like he was called. Uh, he took the form of a serpent to deceive Eve and Adam. And well, Eve was deceived. Adam was not. Um, and you could, we could talk about that later. But Eve was genuinely deceived. Paul makes a point of that. So I don't want to get in trouble here. But Paul makes a point of that in the New Testament to say that um, men should only be. Uh, the, the spiritual leaders in the church because women are wonderful and they have very tender hearts towards God but Eve was deceived, Adam wasn't and, and that's the idea God has wired women most of the women most of the people that get saved uh, first are women they're more open to spiritual things out of, out of ten marriages nine uh, and one gets saved nine out of the ten are the women and, and once in a while you have a guy right? but women are more open to spiritual things but it works both ways it, it's good but it's also bad they're more susceptible to spiritual error and that's why god has given to a woman in marriage a covering uh, which is her husband now that doesn't mean that he's the sharpest pencil in the box or uh, he's the most spiritual out of the two but uh, you know uh, my pastor used to say if i could put it in terms you might understand women their emotions are very fine they're like a very fine uh, wine goblet you know very crystal you know very Thin, it's just beautiful and, and very, you know. Uh, men, we're like, you know, A&W root beer mugs. We're just, we're a, we're a lot more, you know, we, we're not really in touch with our feelings as much, but we're more analytical, more, you know, logical in our thinking. That doesn't apply to all women, all guys. Some guys are very in touch with their emotions. Some women are very analytical. But yet, yet the idea. For the most part, that's how God has wired men and women. So Paul says that's why a man, a woman shouldn't teach or exercise authority over a man in the church. Because Eve was deceived, Adam was not, and that's why God has ordained the men be. In, in these days of you know, egalitarianism and women's lib and all that, I mean, oh, do they hate it when we teach from the Bible that men are to be leaders in their families, leaders in the church, 
Women are not allowed to be pastors or elders. Oh, that gets a lot of people in trouble. I'm going to end it there. Okay. So the old serpent. Uh, the title devil is from the Greek diabolos, and it comes from a verb which has the meaning of defaming or slandering or accusing. Uh, the devil is the master accuser of the brethren. We'll talk about that more in a second. And the name Satan from the Hebrew has the meaning of adversary. Adversary. So verse 9 again, so the, the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, listen, who deceives the whole world. Now, we touched on this uh, a couple weeks ago, and we said that originally the devil was called the serpent. We see that in the Garden of Eden, and so originally he presents himself as a serpent. Well, a serpent is a creature that has to use stealth and uh, it kind of a, a strikes its prey secretively, you know, it kind of sneaks up on them, and, and, and that's how it devours its prey, right? Um, a dragon, and I believe that dragons are not simply mythological creatures. I believe that uh, they really existed at one time. A dragon, though, is a very powerful creature. I believe in uh, Job, at the end of the book of Job, we, it talks about the Leviathan and, uh, and the behemoth. I personally believe a behemoth, if you look at the, uh, at the description, is uh, brontosaurus. We know that dinosaurs lived on the earth. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And um, we have fossils and things. Dinosaurs are real. Cavemen are not. Come up and talk to me if you have, okay. Cavemen, not real. But dinosaurs are. And I believe that in Job's day, remember, Job was the oldest book in the Bible, not the first in the cover, but the oldest book in the, going back about 2,500 years B.C. Abraham shows up around 2,000 years B.C., Moses 1,500, David 1,000 B.C. In general, okay, people will debate the exact number, but just for a general idea, okay? And, um, but in Job's day, he talks about the behemoth. I think it's a brontosaurus. He talks about Leviathan, and if you read the description, that's a dragon. That's, I've heard pastors say, well, it's a hippopotamus. And it, I'm like, but hippopotamus? Did you read the description of this creature's tail? It's like a cedar tree. You ever see a hippopotamus's tail? I mean, come on, pastors, get with it. Don't, you know. So I believe dragons at one time lived on the earth, okay? Um, but a dragon is a very powerful creature. It doesn't have to sneak up on its prey. Nobody can stand against it. I believe, personally, that a dragon was the most powerful creature. I'm not talking about angels. I'm not talking about earthly animals. was the most powerful animal that, in all of God's creation. It didn't have to use stealth. It didn't have to be secretive. It could just confront its prey head on. No, no, no other animal could stand before it, right? If you think about the devil, and we talked about this. I'm not going to belabor it, but... In the beginning, Satan had to take the form of a serpent to deceive Eve. And through the centuries, he, he always deceived through, through um, uh, under the cloak of darkness. Uh, he always kind of was, was a secretive thing, used subtlety and so on, right? As we come to the last three and a half years of the 70th week of Daniel, Right before Jesus comes back, everything has changed. Um, the devil still deceives, don't get me wrong. 
He's a deceiver. It's just that he has been able to turn his deception around where his lies look like truth and God's truth looks like lies. What do I mean? Well, in those days, the Bible says that the whole world is going to, the world of unbelievers, is going to worship the dragon and the Antichrist, his son, quote unquote, okay? But they're going to think that the devil is really God, the, the good God. The Antichrist, he's really the Messiah. And so all these Christians who are saying, no, the dragon is Satan who is evil. The Antichrist is his, you know, his false Christ that he's deceived. They're going to think that those who proclaim that message are wicked, evil. They are going to be looked upon as the devil worshipers are looked upon right now. And really, guys, we talked about this a few Sundays ago, how that what's going on today is that people are embracing uh, ideologies in such a way that they have become, uh, they believe in them with a, a kind of religious fervor. We have moved away from just embracing an ideology with your intellect and debating with people that you disagree with, okay, like used to be. Now people are embracing these lies of the devil in such a way as that it becomes a religion to them. And really, what better way for the devil to get his people, the Antichrist and his followers, to kill God's people than to have this moral inversion where good is bad and bad is good and light is darkness and darkness is light and so on. So that now the devil looks like God, the Antichrist looks like Jesus Christ, and they are worshipped as the true God and his true Savior and all the other people, the true people of God, are looked upon as uh, demonic, uh, wicked, and so we got to get rid of them. We have to get rid of them. That mentality is already being laid right now and applied to other things in society, which is programming people and conditioning them so that when the Antichrist comes, they will buy into his lies. And once again now, as we're seeing today with various other things, COVID and other things, um, people that disagree are evil. They're murderers. They're domestic terrorists. They need to be removed from society. Some are even advocating their execution. Now, they're fringe right now, but they're going to be mainstream eventually. Under the Antichrist, anyone who... You can't, you can't talk against, um, you know, COVID on Facebook or Twitter without being banned. They won't allow it. Try to talk about the Antichrist in negative terms in those days. And they're not going to just shut you down. They're going to hunt you down. And they're going to find people, not you, but we'll be in heaven as the church. But Christians who are living at this time are going to be hunted down. And they're going to be persecuted and, I believe, killed. Well, we know Revelation 7, uh, uh, um, John sees uh, uh, martyrs in heaven that have come out of the Great Tribulation so numerous he can't even number them. And, and so that's coming. All this is laying the groundwork is my point, okay? And we're seeing just a real um, inversion, moral inversion starting to take place even today. Again, verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, 
Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has, have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before God day and night, has been cast down. Uh, this is talking about now the midpoint of the 70th week of Daniel and then moving into the second half where things really ramp up against God's people. All right? But listen, right now, um, well, we, we read in the midpoint how that Satan is cast out of heaven and comes to the earth, and his angels are cast out, right? Uh, he has access to God's throne right now. What does he do when he appears before? He accuses us, constantly accusing us, okay? Um, and he's able to do that now until the midpoint when Michael and his angels battle against the devil and his angels, and they are cast out. And the door is locked behind them. They can't have access any longer. And they come down to the earth, the devil does, and his angels having great wrath. They know that they only have a little time left. And so, but right now, though, the devil has access to heaven where we are told he constantly accuses us before God day and night. That's why we have and need an advocate and an intercessor right now. And both of them are Jesus Christ. Okay? We read in 1 John 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so, that you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The word advocate there in the Greek means an attorney for the defense. And an eternity, excuse me, an attorney, attorney, wow. Uh, <laughs> an attorney for the defense. How would you like to have, be an attorney and your dad's the judge? can't happen in our system but in god's system it works pretty well if you have jesus as your defense attorney okay um what does all that mean well it just means this that the devil is constantly coming before god and saying uh, you know like lord you've seen that servant of yours that phil ballmeyer look at how he messes up look at how he constantly blows it now lord I mean, what about that? You're a righteous God. Aren't you going to do something with him? Aren't you going to judge him? I mean, God, every sin he commits against you, this was a Jewish thought. Jesus reaffirmed it. Every sin committed against God was a debt that they owed God. They had to pay it. Remember, Jesus, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, right? He taught us to pray that way. Because in the Jewish mindset, every sin was a debt that was owed to God. And of course, the more sin, the more a person owed God a debt, a debt they could never pay, right? But every time the devil condemns one of us and says, well, God, look it. Look at your servant. Look at how they're blowing it. What are you going to, shouldn't you judge them? Jesus steps forward as our defense attorney and says, Father, don't listen to that. I've already paid for those sins. I've already, they're already under my blood. Remember what? Jesus said before he dismissed his, bowed his head, dismissed his spirit, he said, paid in full. He said, to telestai. He said, it is finished. Greek is telestai means paid in full. And Paul said, he took our ledger, which contained all the sins, all the, the debt we owed God, all the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, and he stamped our ledger paid in full to telestai. 
and, and, and our sins are taken. Not just the sins we committed up until the point we got saved, but all the sins we would ever commit. So the Jesus, now the devil can still accuse us. He has no basis though. He can go before the Father and accuse you and me of blowing it and messing up and violating God's commandments. But again, Jesus paid the price. He's got no legal standing. He's got, he can't win that case because the debt has already been paid. Jesus paid it. And besides that, we have an intercessor, an advocate, but also an intercessor. I want you to turn to this one, Hebrews 7, verse 25. Guys, you all know John 3.16. Every Christian has memorized John 3.16. It's one of the greatest verses in the Bible, right? We wouldn't argue with that. How many Christians think that Hebrews 7.25 is also one of the greatest verses in the Bible? Probably not many. What they don't understand is that when Jesus saved us, when we put our faith in him, there are those who say, well, then, great, you were saved, but now you have to keep living a certain life to stay saved. Now, that's something a lot of Christians believe, that once I get saved, I can lose my salvation. How? If I don't measure up. If I, if I don't live a certain kind of a holy life, what kind of life is that? Well, every group has their own set of standards, right? Do's and don'ts. Now let me read Hebrews 7.25 to you. Therefore, he, Jesus, is also able to save, my Bible says, to the uttermost. What that means is all the way to glory. I mean, didn't Paul say that in the great golden chain of Romans 8? Those he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified, saved. Those he justified, he what? Glorified. All those have taken place in the past. I was, I was foreknown, predestined, called, justified, saved. Yet, I'm not glorified yet. But in the Greek, Paul used the past tense because it was a way of saying that they all go together. You can't have one without the other. It's a, some have called it, theologians, the golden chain. It's an unbroken chain. If you have one to start, you're going to have all of them, and especially glorified to finish. That's an unbroken promise that God has given to us. Okay, But it's in the past tense, um, which signifies something that hasn't happened yet, but is as good as done. It's guaranteed. So they put it in the past tense to emphasize that uh, point. All right? Um, here's what the writer is saying. Remember now, the high priest, whenever people brought a sacrifice to God and the high priest offered it, he then would intercede on behalf of the people. And uh, the writer of the Hebrews says the problem was the high priest was um, an earthly person, which meant the office was for life, but they didn't live forever, right? But Jesus is the great high priest of the new covenant who abides forever. And the idea is once you get saved, then we have Jesus Christ who constantly intercedes on our behalf based on what? An animal sacrifice? No, that's over. Based on his sacrifice, which is eternal. 
which the blood of God's Son, Jesus Christ, continually cleanses us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9, right? What a blessed verse that is. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, continually cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And Jesus intercedes. He prays to the Father, and he, not that the Father has to be reminded, but for our sake, you know, we talk about God in anthropomorphic terms, like, apply human characteristics to him just so we understand but jesus is constantly interceding reminding the father that that we have applied the blood of christ to our lives and that blood is forever it constantly cleanses us from all sin and so um, that's how we can never go to hell because if we were going to lose our salvation and go to hell jesus would have to stop being or an assessor, he would have to be gone, have to die. That's not going to happen. So we, he's able to save to the uttermost, all the way to glory, right? Um, I think we will leave it there only because there are some other things that we're going to be getting into that I don't want to rush. Um, I'll just throw a little teaser out to you, verse 11. And they overcame him, dot, dot, dot. Who was they? tribulation saint who do they overcome the devil Ooh, that's interesting how did they overcome the devil well that's the thing uh, because the way these tribulation saints are going to overcome the devil in the future when they are here is basically the same way we overcome the devil in our lives every day and very important talk about uh, understanding spiritual warfare and how to fight it it's a lot of warped ideas today it's a lot of bad theology, doctrine, that has entered into the church on how to fight and defeat the devil. And um, we're going to talk about that next time because these uh, tribulation saints are lifted up as, as victors. And how do they overcome the devil? How do they become victorious? Well, we'll look at that, God willing, next time. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you, first of all, have, have saved us. You've given us your word to instruct us, to encourage us. Many great and precious promises in your word to, uh, for us to, to hold on to, to look forward to. But Lord, we just pray that you would continue to teach us that we might walk in your truth. We thank you, Lord, that as this world is crumbling all around us, you are the only rock. You are the only constant. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as we have built our lives on you, our lives will never uh, crumble. We will never, uh, you know, be destroyed. Uh, Lord, as you are stable, you are secure, so is our salvation, our relationship with you. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.